Welcome all to the Theology Mill podcast from Whitfinstock Publishers. My name is Zach Mickle and I work here at Whitfinstock and I'm also the host of this podcast, which consists of interviews with some of the leading authors in theology, biblical studies, and philosophy. If you like what you hear on the podcast, come stop by our website at whitfinstock.com. That's W-I-P-F and stock, S-T-O-C-K dot com. So this episode is the second of three interviews in our Apocalyptic Paul booth in which we are trying to give you guys an introductory engagement with apocalyptic readings of the Apostle Paul and kind of putting these into conversation with other schools of Pauline interpretation, um, along with Second Temple Jewish apocalyptic literature um, and even more contemporary theology and philosophy. On this episode, I got to talk with Dr. Douglas Herrink, who is the Professor Emeritus of Theology at the King's University in Edmonton, Alberta, and whose main areas of interest are in Pauline studies and contemporary theology, especially political theology. Among his publications are Paul Among the Post-Liberals, Pauline Theology Beyond Christendom and Modernity, uh, along with the edited volumes Paul, Philosophy, and the Theopolitical Vision, Critical Engagements with Agamben, Baju, Zizak, and others, and uh, also Apocalyptic in the Future of Theology with and beyond J. Lewis Martin. All three of those, by the way, are, are published with us at Whitfinstock, so you can see the show notes um, if you want to take a look at Dr. Herring's author page on our website. But with that, uh, I want to say thank you very much for listening to our show, and we hope you enjoy the conversation. So I'm here talking with Dr. Douglas uh, Herink, um, and we are sharing a drink over a phone call. Um, I'm on my second cup of coffee this morning it's just a black coffee that i french press and i don't want to bash on a particular coffee brand it's not the best coffee cup i've ever had if i'm honest it's it's from a, a big uh coffee company everyone's probably heard of that whose name starts with an s and ends with an s and uh so you probably all know which one i'm talking about but uh it's not the greatest cup of coffee, but it's it's getting me through, and it's 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 not so bad. Like it's it's tolerable, and I'm sort of one of those people who would drink Folgers happily. So I'm I'm not unhappy with it. But what are you what are you drinking? Well, um, I am very unhappy with that coffee, so I never buy it. <laughs> I know which one you fair mean. enough. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, a number of years ago, I um, there there uh was a company that started roasting here in Edmonton and um, they never roast anything beyond a medium. Uh, and I started tasting all these different flavors in yeah. different coffees, something besides uh, burnt. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and so they get uh, it, it's a strictly relationship uh, coffee. So um they always provide the name of the farmer and where the farmer works and uh, where, oh, where cool. the farmer uh, is, whether in Central or South America or in Kenya or something like that. And uh, what the produc production uh, style is for that particular farmer. Anyway, all of that uh, to say that um, once I tasted 
a properly roasted coffee i never in fact i can't go back to starbucks it just yeah yeah, uh, yeah. sorry i named a name but i can't go <laughs> back there um and i just find uh i just find uh burnt coffee impossible to drink anymore yeah <laughs> so the fact is i actually spend quite a bit of money on this coffee but i just have one mug in the morning and that's it so that's the way i reduce my expense on it yeah for sure no i know what you mean i i made the mistake of going to college in portland so i, I grew up in a small town in central oregon and moved to portland for college which is like coffee snobbery central of course, and so yeah. i have also <laughs> i have also developed a distaste for anything that's not like light roast and yeah. single origin and all that stuff so I know what yeah. you mean. Yeah, this uh, this cup is uh, it's it's medium roast, so it's not as bad as like their right. dark roast stuff. But I'm I'm tolerating it for the time being. Okay, let's uh, let's dig into apocalyptic Paul. So I'm going to start with a really broad question, um, which is sort of how would you how would you describe the apocalyptic Paul, um, Pauline apocalyptic, how would you describe it in a nutshell? Because I think that that term apocalyptic is so contested and has so many different meanings for different people. So if you could kind of sum up in a nutshell what, what this means, the apocalyptic Paul. Yeah, of course, it's a, an incredibly contested term and some people feel like it's useless and uh, um so on and you know what's the connection between paul and um second temple uh apocalyptic texts and all, all there are all these those questions but i still find it useful um uh and and so there's this uh little sentence by Kazeman um that i think kind of sums it up to whom does the sovereignty of the world belong and uh that's that suggests that um the cosmos for paul is a sphere of warfare um there are all kinds of principalities and powers and sovereigns and gods uh that lay claim to the cosmos and humankind uh sin and death being kind of the the big powers if you want to the uber powers yeah um i mean you get a list of these for example in in romans 8 38 to 39 um and so the apocalypse um of god is uh, the good news that god through the death and resurrection of the messiah and the sending of the spirit um declares and enacts his own sovereign claim on the world and history and human persons and and it is about to my mind it is about the question of sovereignty um who Who's right? <laughs> Who has the right, as it were, to rule the world? Um, and uh, what are the who are the claimants uh, to that right that oppose God? And so uh, Christ enters into that um, cosmic context, not just cosmic, of course, personal context, because that question is always also being fought out in our our own hearts. So um, yeah, yeah, so that that's. That's my take on apocalyptic. Um, other approaches to Paul, for example, uh, you know, the classic one um, of justification by faith. 
Um, I, you know, certainly Luther had a, a profound sense, I think, of, of cosmic warfare, but um, Protestantism, particular, particularly in modernity, has kind of uh, shuffled that off to the side, and basically it becomes a question of uh, my standing before God. Mm -hmm. And uh, mm -hmm. apocalyptic corrects, I think, that understanding. Sure. Okay. So now, are you a are are you by training a a biblical scholar or a systematic theologian? What what uh, what sort of subdiscipline did you specialize in when you were um, being educated? Well, I um, my uh, primary work was in modern theology. Um, I okay. did a, a dissertation on Bart's critique of Schleiermacher. So I, I did that because I want, wanted to get to the core of issues in contemporary theology. Um, but really all along from my earliest graduate days, I was also tracking with, um, with Pauline studies because I, sure. found, uh, I found that equally as fascinating. And, and so what I ended up doing for a lot of my writing projects is kind of blending the two. Um, hmm. my Paul among the post-liberals, of course, uh, looks at, uh, Pauline theology in the context of, um, the debates over issues in modern theology. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. Yeah. I'm glad you brought up the justification by faith reading of Paul, um, because I, I would love to hear sort of your perspective on like why why you've chosen sort of an apocalyptic apocalyptic reading of Paul versus uh, you know other other readings we might make of him like what what sort of warrants the apocalyptic reading in your view? Um, I in in some sense I guess I would have to say well I have no choice. Um, sure. You start with. I mean, you can start with Romans 1, 1 to 5, uh, Galatians 4, 1 to 8, um, 1 Corinthians 1, uh, the first two chapters, 1 Corinthians, um, 2 Corinthians 5, Galatians 2. Uh, it, it, so anyway, I mean, you can, um, I, you know, I guess it is a choice. In some sense, it's, it's a question. Where do you think, where do you think the um, determinative um texts uh in paul lie right um you know jc becker uh j christian becker uh talked of contingency and coherence and he lo located coherence in those uh, more apocalyptically oriented passages mm -hmm. and um and i would say well that's where you find paul making the most fundamental and um far-reaching theological claims so in romans 1 1 to 5 the question of sovereignty is front and center um you, you know the announcement of the good news of god uh and god's sovereign claim on the world through um jesus christ and his resurrection from the dead uh and that as uh good news to all the nations i i typically translate ethne um as nations so um in Galatians 4, uh, which now I, I follow Martin here. He takes that as kind of the center of the letter to the Galatians. Uh, in Galatians 4, Paul speaks about um, in fullness of time, God sending forth his son 
um, and that sending forth is the overturning of um, the gods and lords that hold the world in bondage, the liberation um, that comes about uh, through God sending forth his son and spirit. And, and I could go on. I mean, um, you could also look at some of those core texts where Paul speaks about himself, speaks autobiographically. Um, mm -hmm. So Paul's in Galatians, uh, Paul at one point in Galatians 2 speaks about um, the apocalypse of his own self. Mm -hmm. I have been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Um, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And, and so that crucifixion of the self and that coming alive again um, uh, is, is what I would call the apocalypse of Paul's own self, if you want to call it that. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, self is a bit of a, diff, um, I would say self, the word self. Sometimes you get, uh, you know, anthropos translated self in, um, in English translations, but uh, I don't sure. think Paul speaks in terms of a modern sense of self but anyway i mean paul does yeah. understand himself to have been crucified uh and you know when he unpacks what that means let's say in a text like philippians 3 it does mean a fairly radical undoing uh a death of how he understood himself uh and a resurrection of how he understands himself now uh, mm -hmm. to be living a life that is not his own um galatians 6 uh, 14 and 15, he speaks of um, the crucifixion of the world. I have been crucified to the world and the world to me. And then he goes on to speak about a new creation. So these are, I mean, you know, it's a, these are texts of radical undoing um, and bringing forth of something radically new. Um, so, I mean, when, when you start looking through Paul's letters, um i don't know i just i just find these much more apocalyptically oriented texts to be yeah. really determinative of how to understand paul sure yeah sure so i i'm not a reader of greek um i imagine a lot of our listeners are not as uh, um either so but from my understanding um the term that would that literally would be translated as apocalypse in some of Paul's writings seems like it gets translated into English a lot as like revelation or reveal. So if 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 I'm right about that, why why do you think that um that is sort of the translation that that is preferred? Why do I think revelation is preferred? Yeah, yeah, like why, 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 why do you think that interpreters make make that decision to use uh, revelation or reveal instead of apocalypse? Well, you know, there's there's a sense in which literally that is the way to translate apocalypso. So mm -hmm. uh, it it is um, to take away a veil effectively. So um, you know, I've I've written somewhere that it's kind of like the reveal on some of these um reality tv shows you know where sure. <laughs> uh so so it's like pulling back the curtain yeah to, uh, and, and you know there there are apocalyptic uh uh texts um in judaism and so on where 
curtains are pulled back or the heavens are opened and uh, mm -hmm. book of revelation the first couple chapters you yeah. know um uh john is lifted up to see something uh something is disclosed to him but um but i mean you can go on in the book of revelation and see that well uh it is a the apocalypse is about far more than pulling back a veil uh, because as right. you go on to read you see that it is about powerful battles right mm -hmm. it's mm -hmm. uh, the book of revelation is an action-packed book <laughs> um where the question of sovereignty and power is at the heart of it so um and and so you know the the simplest and most straightforward translation of apocalypto is to reveal mm -hmm. um but when you start looking at what apocalypto means in the context of its um you know in the context of what's going on uh it is all about uh power if you want to put it that way and and, and it's all about uh struggle um it's about god doing something decisive entering decisively upon the scene to bring about a new thing um so it's not a it's not a a simple revealing of what was there all along it is god uh entering into the human scene which has gone badly wrong and bringing about powerfully bringing about something radically new um and so paul says in romans you know 1 uh 17 uh the gospel is the power of god for deliverance right yeah and and uh he goes on from there so the the only reason to use the word apocalypse in its kind of greek form i mean that's effectively you're just you know using the greek word uh is to say is to is to unsettle the notion that what we've got is just a revelation of some information or a pulling back of a veil to to, to see hidden mysteries sure. um what we've got is uh god stepping onto the scene as uh martin j lewis martin you like to put it god stepping onto the scene to powerfully bring about um a new situation a rectification of the world yeah 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 absolutely no that's very helpful thank you yeah so i mean from my understanding um a lot of the scholarship on apocalyptic paul uh sort of emerged in especially like um 20th century kind of germany and north america um and you've mentioned it you've mentioned a few of the bigger figures um but who who would you say are some of the kind of major players some of the major historic figures in this kind of stream of of uh pauline interpretation and then what were sort of those figures kind of distinctive contributions to apocalyptic readings of paul yeah that's a that's a big question and um yeah you could i could go on for a long time on that um yeah yeah <laughs> I, I guess i guess in some ways i would um answer that question by answering uh, the second last question you sent me who uh, where would you recommend people start if they want to familiarize with their, themselves yeah. with Pauline Apocalypse? And you know, um, Whip and Stock, your uh, your bosses have put out um, 
<laughs> fantastic book by Jamie Davies called The Apocalyptic Paul. Yeah. And that that book covers that background beautifully. I, I just got um, yesterday in the mail um, the dictionary um, of Paul and his letters, the second edition. And I see that uh, mm -hmm. I see that Jamie Davies also has um, the article on Apocalyptic Paul in there. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's a fantastic place to to get you know kind of thumbnail sketches mm -hmm. of some of the key figures, and he he goes back to um, to uh, Albert Schweitzer, for example, who who kind of recovers the apocalyptic uh, in Jesus and Paul. Um, not exactly the way I would construe it in our own time, but he basically says, you know, if you're reading. If you're trying to read Jesus and Paul non-apocalyptically, you're just not getting the point, okay? Right. Um, uh, and, and so, I mean, apocalyptic in the New Testament context, um, you know, yields up all kinds of strange things. I mean, you can go, for example, into uh, First and Second Thessalonians in Paul or the book of Revelation or, or the little apocalypse in Mark, Mark 13. And you get these dramatic cosmic events. Well, in an enlightened uh, modern Europe, none of that made any sense. And and so mm -hmm. someone like uh, Rudolf Bultmann says, well, yeah, he agrees with Schweitzer. Yeah, it's uh, of course all set within this this uh, strange apocalyptic context. And Jesus uh, and Paul are both um, shaped in some powerful ways by by uh, second temple apocalypticism but um so but boltman says you know we can't accept any of that ridiculous stuff in the modern age so we have to demythologize it mm -hmm. um and it, you know i mean this is just the standard narrative of, of it um Kaysman comes along and says no um what what apocalyptic is about is <clears throat> to use a, a bart phrase it's about world occurrence, okay? It's mm -hmm. not about the individual human heart in its relationship to God. Um, you know, Boltman in many respects reduces it to a kind of existential relation with God. Uh, mm -hmm. Kaysman says, no, it's about, it's, it's about God's relation to the world, um, what God brings about in the world and in bodies through jesus christ and uh and it's about how it, it is about how humans uh live in and engage a world that stands in many respects opposed to god so um so caseman brings in that whole kind of cosmic dimension within which uh the christian life is enacted and with respect to which um the Christian life is enacted and it moves on from there. Certainly, uh, you know, my first introduction to apocalyptic was not either Schweitzer or Kaysman. It was actually J.C. Becker, uh, mm. who, who also follows up with that understanding of, um, of real world engagement, um, in, you know, in things like politics and so on like that. Um, so yeah, there's that whole, there's, there's that, bringing alive in um these more recent interpreters Kaseman, becker martin and so on that bringing alive of um 
the cosmic dimensions of God's act in Jesus Christ and sending of the spirit, the, the bringing about of a new creation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, I mean, you ask about, uh, say earlier, um, earlier figures. I think you could go back to someone like, um, Athanasius, for example, or Augustine or Luther. Um, I think in fundamental ways, they are apocalyptic thinkers. Um, maybe Augustine, um, you know, the fact that Augustine reads the world in the city of God, he reads the world in the light of the reality of Jesus Christ. Well, that is, Mm -hmm. um, an apocalyptic maneuver as far as I'm concerned. He's right. interested in, in I mean, he's deeply interested in the politics of the empire and stuff like that. But but I also want to stress maybe the the Anabaptists. Um, you know, the Anabaptists um, in the in the sixteenth century, early sixteenth century, um, realized that not even the churches and the uh, major reformers were radical enough in discerning the kind of new being um, and new world order that the gospel demanded, that the gospel Mm -hmm. created and demanded. And so the Anabaptists, uh, I think, had a heightened awareness of, um, number one, the claims of powers and sovereigns, even over Christians, Mm-hmm. And that that power in some fundamental way was broken in Jesus Christ. Uh, and they had to live according to uh, the power of the gospel. So so I think in some fairly powerful way, the Anabaptists were the. Um, were were. Really important apocalyptic readers of mm-hmm. the New Testament. Mm hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's a really interesting connection. Um so it, I mean it's, it does seem like uh historically the apocalyptic Paul was sort of the domain of uh biblical scholars, especially New Testament Pauline scholars. But then there's also I mean, so you, you mentioned Jamie Davies' book, which I read um as well and and one one of the things he he has a whole chapter sort of devoted to this this wave of uh systematic theologians who have drawn on Pauline apocalyptic sort of pulled mm-hmm. it in pulled it pulled the Paul you know the conversation happening in Pauline apocalyptic into the realm of systematic theology which is in some ways sort of what you've done as well so yeah. what would you say what would you say that um those discussions of Pauline apocalyptic can kind of contribute to systematics. Um, well, I think I, I, my first thought when I looked at that question, I, I thought, well, dynamism, I think. Okay. So I, in some respects, I don't really see myself as a systematic theologian. Okay. Uh, you know, I don't have any, in principle, objection to um, to systematic theology. In fact, I'm reading one right now with a, a group, um, Catherine Sonderegger's uh, systematic theology, and 
if you want a systematic theology that is full of dynamism, that's it. As for as also, for example, Karl Barth. But if you're thinking in terms of systematic theology as just kind of laying out all of the doctrines in what you consider to be their proper order and expounding on them and kind of setting them before your readers as a kind of block of truth, shall we say, mm -hmm. um, most systematic theologies lack that kind of dynamism uh, and engagement with the present age, shall we say. So uh, what I see in... Uh, in people like uh, Ziegler, Ziegler is my uh, prime example. What I see there is uh, is a dynamism uh, of theology and an engagement, um, and, or let me put it this way, an engaged theology. Um, and it's interesting that Ziegler, for example, uh, is now drawing on people like uh, Jacques Ellul and um, um, uh, well, Kierkegaard, uh, Paul Lehman, you know, these characters who were, who were engaged, um, in the worlds in which they lived and felt that the theological task, uh, was always, um, uh, embedded in that engagement, um, mm -hmm. that engagement had to make a difference for how theology is done. So, so uh, yeah, it's 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 the dynamism. You know, the the Greek word for power is dunamis, um, and so I think an apocalyptically inflected theology needs to speak powerfully into um, the present age and enable uh, readers and pastors um, uh, to think deeply and seriously about their um, current contexts in the light of the gospel. So yeah, it, uh, it, it would be systematic theology that works from uh, the dunamis, the power of God, to critical engagement with um, the powers at work in our age. That's, that's mm -hmm. to me um, the meaning of systematic theology or just kind of contemporary theology moved by an apocalyptic understanding of the gospel. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, you, you sort of take um, that journey from, you know, biblical scholarship to sort of systematic theology. You, you sort of take that even further into the terrain of philosophy, especially in your, Mm -hmm. um the collection you edited with us paul philosophy and the theopolitical vision i think there the contributors are engaging with like zizak and agamben i don't know how to pronounce his name um Baju, uh i think there are others as well but but all of whom have who have done sort of um i don't know you could call it non-theistic or even atheistic <laughs> scholarship on paul um, so what, what, what kind of did you, what kind of did you learn about Paul as you were undertaking that project and researching for it? Um, <clears throat> I, I have to confess, uh, probably less than I thought I would at the time. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, uh, I mean, I, I, I found, 
reading especially uh, Badiou and Agamben, um, interesting at the time, I felt that they had grasped, each had grasped something very different in Paul. Mm -hmm. um, and so Badiou, for example, I think does uh, have a pretty strong, I mean, he doesn't use the word apocalyptic at all. I think he would be hor horrified. <laughs> at, at the very idea of apocalyptic but yeah, yeah. when you start reading how he understands what happens to paul and where paul um what makes paul paul the apostle i think he has grasped something of um the pauline apocalyptic novum you know the new mm -hmm. um uh, and yet for uh Badiou, who's a you know a self-declared atheist uh, for him, this radical new thing um, that happens um, to Paul and from Paul uh, is effectively an eruption from the void, right? There's no, mm -hmm. there's no substantial foundation there, if you want to call it that. Um, uh, it's just an event that springs up from the void and, and so on. So, I mean... Um, in the end, if you want to put it this way, the godlessness of uh, Badiou's uh, philosophy um, ultimately undermines the the point in some ways. I mean, uh, the other thing about Badiou is, of course, he he thinks Paul has uh, important things to say into the political context, and I think he's right yeah. about that. Yeah. Uh, with a gambin. <clears throat> Um, again, now Gammon, I, it's hard to know exactly where Gammon stands uh, in terms of faith and God and so on. He he's never declares himself, really. Mm -hmm. um, at times, you get a sense that he's actually really engaged with the Catholic tradition in many respects to provide some pretty fundamental critiques of it. But yeah. it seems like he's reluctant to let it go. Yeah. Uh, nevertheless, um, he... Uh, my my sense in Paul uh, for his work on Paul is that he truly grasps something of Pauline messianism. Okay, now I think apocalyptic and messianism are are hand in glove in Paul. Mm -hmm. uh, apocalyptic forming the very character of uh, his messianism and messianism forming the very character of his apocalyptic. Um, but of course, Agamemnon too uh, understands. Pauline messianism completely within the imminent frame, right? So um, uh, there's no transcendence there. Uh, in that sense, There, there's no power of God, if you want to put it that way, at mm -hmm. work for Gammon. Um, and this leads to some, I, I, I think on the one hand, precisely because Paul himself is in some pretty fundamental ways um, dealing with the question of power and um, radically rethinking the meaning of the power of God um, in, in the light of Jesus Christ, um, there, there is a sense in which power for Paul means something radically different from power as it is typically engaged um, by the by the power figures of our age right and mm -hmm. so I, I think a gambin gets that he understands that paul is working with a fundamentally different understanding of power 
Uh, and so I think reading a gammon can, um, in some respects, uh, enable us to uh, see what that might look like um, uh, in Paul. So, so they're, they're helpful. Each is helpful in, in its own in his own way. But in the end, I think um, in the end, I think they're less helpful than I initially imagined they would be. Someone who actually, a philosopher who is actually now increasingly more helpful for me in this respect is Kierkegaard, I think. But then, of course, he mm -hmm. was a radically Christian philosopher. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's, yeah, that interests me a lot. How, how would you say Kierkegaard has been more helpful to you than these others? Um, well, first, first of all, maybe you could say, well, this is kind of where Badiou is at, too. Um, the radicality of the uh, claim that God makes on our lives mm. and how that radical claim then does set us in a, in a critical relation to our age, um, no matter what age it is, right? Mm. Uh, so um, Kierkegaard um, says that the gospel demands of us um an absolute loyalty and that loyalty then uh qualifies and critiques and it disengages us from all our other loyalties uh it did disengages us from the way that we have typically thought that our christian loyalty implies all other kinds of loyalties to nation to yeah. you know certain certain kinds of understandings of economy and these kinds of things so and, and so that um that disengagement is the first step um towards a, a very different re-engagement of uh, our present age so yeah so uh i find kierkegaard increasingly helpful there my friend uh myron bradley penner wrote a book a while back um so mostly on Kierkegaard's apologetics, but, uh, but uh, or critique of apologetics, I should say. But in in any case, um, he's kind of opened my eyes, as has Phil Ziegler, uh, to um, what Kierkegaard can contribute. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there are some other movements in contemporary philosophy that uh, I would say contemporary Roman Catholic philosophy that I think are interesting um so you get recent um roman catholic and orthodox uh theological metaphysics that mm -hmm. i think are rooted in god's apocalypse in christ okay uh in other words um they're seeking out the metaphysical entailments uh, of the gospel rather than setting up metaphysics as a way of curtailing um, the gospel, right? So, so one of the, mm -hmm. you know, one of the serious and I think important critiques of, if you want to put it this way, classical metaphysics, is that it sets up uh, kinds of conditions under which we need to think about how God works in the world and so on and so forth. And and you know the, you know Luther's uh, reaction against um, um, medieval metaphysics and Bart's reaction against uh, metaphysics and so on. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
is a reaction away against the way in which um, you know these kind of high philosophies curtail uh, the gospel. But now I think there's a, a movement uh, probably led primarily by Cyril O'Regan. I don't know if that name rings any bells for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It does. Uh, John Betts, uh, David Bentley Hart. Mm -hmm. um, I, th I think they're saying, what are the metaphysical entailments? In other words, what do we, what might we need to say, or what might be helpful to say metaphysically, um, arising out of a fundamentally gospel-oriented, gospel-shaped vision of reality? Mm -hmm. And um, you know, D uh, David Bentley Hart looks for um, roots in people like Bulgakov and. Mm -hmm. uh, Jawara, and of course, a lot of these characters are deeply indebted to von Balthasar. So, I, I think uh, there's, there's, uh, you know, you ask the question, what can Pauline apocalyptic contribute to philosophy, mm -hmm. and philosophy to uh, Pauline apocalyptic? I think, I think some of those characters are really working at that intersection of apocalyptic and philosophy in much more helpful ways than ultimately Badiou and Agamemnon do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I'm I'm glad you brought up some of those uh, Roman Catholic and Orthodox theologians and philosophers because I think Cyril O'Regan's project has been really interesting to me because mm -hmm. it seems like Apocalyptic Paul has historically been and maybe still is kind of dominated um, by uh, Protestants. Uh, yeah, and so Cyril O'Regan's kind of unique in in offering a. a Catholic spin. So what would you say is sort of distinctive about his project um, because of his Catholicness, but also maybe just at a broader scale, like why do you think this has been a distinctly Protestant movement movement? Like what are the what are the sort of barriers that Catholic and Orthodox theologians and philosophers might have uh, when coming to Pauline apocalyptic? Um that's that's kind of a, a long conversation. <laughs> Might even have to go back sure. to things like the Analogia Entis uh, yeah. and, and Bart's critique of that, um, and and that debate between Bart and von Balthasar and Eric Shavara and so on um, yeah. is now being lifted up and reexamined, and uh, you know, a much greater affinity between Bart and uh, Jawara, for example, is being discerned. Mm -hmm. So, um, so, you know, it, I, I would say certainly within the 20th century, Bart's critique of uh, Bart's critique of Roman Catholic philosophy, I guess, um, is, is one of the barriers. But that barrier is, I think, in profound ways being overcome. You know, I, uh, I don't John Betts is another character here. He's written a number of, um, I think, really potent articles in, uh, primarily, I think, in modern theology, the journal. Mm -hmm. And um, and I find uh, that he is, well, he's deeply engaged in, in uh, the whole question of understanding and retrieving Bart in a more positive way than, let's say, someone like John Milbank has. Sure. Um, uh, but also in looking at, um, I, I mean, he's a scholar of Eric Shavara, helped, uh, he and David Bentley Hart translated the Analogia Entis book by Shavara. 
Mm-hmm. So, um, um, yeah, I, th- I think in some ways, taking a look at the whole question of analogy, rethinking it opens up doors between uh, Protestants and Catholics. Um, but but the Catholic, uh, the Roman Catholic uh, contributors are certainly looking to uh, looking at Barth and saying, well, he was on to something um, in terms of demanding that the gospel um, give fundamental and primary shape to whatever philosophical, um, I, I won't say system, whatever philosophical entailments we think there are. Mm-hmm. And um, and so, and I think, you know, I mean, von Balthasar certainly in his reading of Bart took all that seriously. And so these, um, these, uh, these contemporary philosophical theologians who are indebted to von Balthasar um, are following that up, you know, with deeper readings of Bart and, uh, and comparing the Jawara and Bart and the critiques of the Analogia Entis and so on. Well, all that's a bit distant from Paul, but, uh, but I do see that um, there are some ways out from Pauline apocalyptic into some of these wider discussions um, mm-hmm. of philosophical theology that I think are helpful and important. Yeah, yeah, definitely. No, yeah, since we're kind of tiptoeing into the realm of, of Bart, because um, you, you've you've written quite a bit in uh, pretty positive terms about Bart's writings, especially his um, early commentary on Romans, um and then you've kind of you've kind of related his his thought to the apocalyptic paul sort of stream of thinking so what what would you say is in your view sort of the relation between these two um well i think actually i'm looking uh... I'd actually like to address another question you um, asked, but I think I can maybe come come at that in a little bit later. Um, before we get to Bart, can, and maybe this is related, before we get to Bart, maybe we can pick up on another question you raised um, in, yeah. in the ones you sent me. Sure, yeah, um, yeah. What have you yourself tried to contribute to the conversations around Pauline apocalyptic? How have you tried to advance these conversations? Yeah. And... Um, and I thought about that because, you know, in some ways, I'm not a, I'm not a groundbreaker. I may be more of a communicator of things. But um, I think one thing I've tried to do is bring together um, Pauline apocalyptic and, to some extent, the Paul within Judaism perspectives. Hmm. Um, uh, particularly showing how Paul, Pauline apocalyptic is the opposite of supersessionism, okay? Uh, and, and the fact is, some people have cu- accused the apocalyptic perspective of supersessionism. Of course, the apocalypticists accuse salvation historical readings, etc., of supersessionism. So that just goes back and forth. But um, but I've, I've recently written an essay also to come out uh, from Cascade. Uh, I've written an essay in a, a festschrift for Mark Kinzer, the Messianic Jewish um, Mm-hmm. Uh, theologian, and um, in there I look at 
in, in terms of the friendships I've had with J. Lewis Martin, um, who's now dead, of course, uh, and Mark Kinzer, and how both of these friendships, the one very much stressing the Jewish Paul, Mark Kinzer, mm -hmm. uh, and the other stressing the apocalyptic Paul, uh, I've written an essay uh, for that Feshgrift um, on what these two friendships have meant for me in terms of thinking that they're both right. <laughs> okay. Mm, yeah, um, yeah. I think uh, I think J. Lewis Martin would be somewhat, somewhat skeptical of Messianic Judaism. Um, I think Mark Kinzer is, um, looks suspiciously at um, the apocalyptic Pauline movement. And yet, for me, these two um, characters with their emphases have um, dwelt together in my mind, if you want to put it that way. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying there aren't tensions between those, but uh, if I if I feel like I've made any contribution to um, to the conversation, it's trying to bring together um, the apocalyptic Paul and uh, some of these uh, more more recent discussions about the the Judaism of Paul and how Paul doesn't forsake Judaism. Um, so in, anyway, uh, that's that's one of the intersections that I work at that I think yeah. maybe have made some contribution. Uh, anyway, and, and part of that might lead to might lead to Bart, you know, um, in your next question. I mean, Bart, of course, wrote commentaries on Romans, two commentaries on Romans and an extensive, I mean, you, you could say the whole dogmatics is a commentary on Romans. Um, and at the heart of that, of course, is Romans 9 to 11. Um, and so I've done some close study, particularly of um, Romans 9 to 11 in the Romer brief, in, Car in Bart's Romer brief. Mm -hmm. And I, I think uh, a sympathetic reading with some of my core questions about um, post-supersessionism and apocalyptic um, come out in um, in a careful reading of uh, Bart's um, work on Romans nine to eleven in in the uh, in the Roman brief. Anyway, um, I don't know. I, kind of, I rambled there for a bit. Go ahead. No, you're good. No, that's all interesting stuff. Um, I th yeah, I think one of the contributions you made that was really interesting to me is your work on sort of the nature of what 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 it means to um conduct sort of an apocalyptic uh i don't know re reading of scripture like what 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 how does this affect the you know hermeneutics and how does this affect the way um biblical commentaries are written so you 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 cite like uh J. Lewis Martin and Karl Barth sort of exemplars mm -hmm. of figures who have written um sort of apocalyptic apocalyptically toned uh comment like biblical commentary so what what in in your mind does it mean to sort of read and commentate on paul apocalyptically okay uh yeah so um i think once again as i reflected on that um and even as i i reflected on 
you know, um, Karl Barth's work, you know, what, if, if you read the commentary on Romans, what, what strikes you is once again, dynamism, right? And again, the word dynamism in terms of movement and power. Um, and so you read Bart's commentary on Romans and it's, you know, it's, it's, it's thoroughly engaged. It's engaged with Paul and it's engaged with Bart's present moment. And I think it's in, I think it, it's engaged because it believes that God is living and active and powerful, right? Mm -hmm. um, not just in Paul's time, but in Bart's time as he reads Paul's letters as scripture. So, so um, you know, um, early on in his commentary on Galatians, um, Lou Martin again insists that Paul writes his letters in the expectation um, they, that they are heard in the presence of God and that through them, God will do transformative work in the Galatian congregation. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so does Paul understand himself to be writing scripture in the sense that he understands the Old Testament? I'm not sure he does, but he understands that his words are, the, the words that he writes in this letter are important and he writes them in the conviction because they're because he's basically speaking the gospel. Um, he writes them in the conviction that God, through these works, through these words, will do transformative work in the congregation that hears these words read. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I I think you know um, I, I'm I'm not against the typical historical critical commentary there's stuff you can learn uh and often a whole lot of stuff you can learn from those commentaries mm -hmm. but uh, and and so i guess in that sense i'm making a distinction between those kinds of commentaries and a theological commentary and a, a, a theological commentary it seems is not just trying to say well what's the theology of paul theological commentary is taking seriously that expectation that Paul writes in the presence of God, that the theological commentator writes in the presence of God, mm -hmm. that the theological commentary um, writes in the expectation that God will work through these words, not in the, not in the same sense of obviously as scripture, but God will work through these words, do transformative work through what, I, as a theological commentator, write in that sense. Mm -hmm. It isn't totally dissimilar from preaching, right? Mm -hmm. um, in that submission to the gospel in preaching, one um, expects that God will do work through the words that I speak when I preach. Um, and if preaching is anything other than done in, in any other way than within that expectation, I don't think it's preaching. It might be up, you know, might be giving a lesson, a moral lesson, maybe a historical mm -hmm. lesson, but, but it's not preaching. It's preaching is done in the presence of God and in the prayer and hope and expectation that God will do work through that, through the words that I say. 
Sure. And 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 so that's what what I think theological commentary is. I mean, you know, you take you take Martin's commentary on Galatians. Well, at one level, it looks like a historical critical work, and you know, in many ways, it's deeply invested in historical critical method. But you never get the sense in that commentary that that's where it simply ends. Right. Um, Martin is working to, I'll just use a word that he probably never would, but he's working to channel Paul into our time. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and so it's very hard to read Martin's work just saying, oh, isn't that interesting that Paul thought that back then? And these are the reasons why he thought that. Yeah. Um, and here are the conditions under which he was speaking and under which the congregation was listening to these words, historical conditions, soci sociological conditions, etc. cetera. Uh, no, he's, he's saying the condition, uh, the most fundamental and important condition under which those words are being heard then and are being heard now is the condition of God at work, um, mm -hmm. of God's presence and God's power to transform human lives and transform human situations. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, I want to I want to move to um talking about salvation history because I know that it's pretty commonplace in uh you know writers working in the apocalyptic Paul um for there to be a pretty thoroughgoing pretty strong critique of sort of reading Paul through the lens of salvation history. So how how would you sort of describe uh, what what they what these folks mean by salvation history, and then what is the sort of uh, apocalypse apocalypticism's uh, critique of it? Well, with respect to to reading Paul, um, it's just never been clear to me, even in a letter like Romans that Paul is rooting anything in some kind of um, overarching historical narrative. Paul is rooting what he writes in Scripture, and those are two different things, okay? Um, Paul will always... Uh, base his arguments in scripture, but of course, base his arguments in scripture in the light of the apocalypse of God and Jesus Christ. Okay? Mm -hmm. But scripture is fu fully available to him. The law, the prophets, the writings, uh, the Psalms are fully available to him um, uh, through Jesus Christ. And he has this tremendous freedom to draw from those scriptures um, at will in um, showing how they testify to the reality of Jesus Christ. 
in none of that do I see him saying, look, here's, here's the basic story of Israel. Um, you know, once upon a time, God chose Abraham. No, I'll come back to Abraham in just a minute. Um, mm -hmm. And then there was, um, then, then Abraham uh, had a, a family and a larger family and they, they went into Egypt and God delivered them from Egypt and Exodus is the paradigm there of how I understand everything and so on. And, and again, I'm not saying that, that there isn't a kind of Exodus um, motif in Paul. Romans 8, I think, is a classic spot, but there are other places, certainly. But, um, but it has far more to do with patterns than it does with a kind of continuous narrative. And so for those who try to see or try to lift out what they take to be a continuous narrative in, say, a letter like Romans, a, a narrative about Israel and Israel's history um, and God's working with Israel and so on, uh, you know, for N.T. Wright, of course, the exodus and the exile are key moments in that narrative that, mm -hmm. as far as he's concerned, fundamentally influence what Paul is all about. Uh, not only Paul, everything in the New Testament. Um, I just don't see that in Paul. Um, Paul never gives a narrative of Israel like he did, does of, for example, Jesus Christ in Philippians 2. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and and to be sure, that's a minimalist narrative as well in Philippians 2, the narrative he gives of, of uh, Christ. We don't see that kind of narrative of uh, about Israel um, in Paul. Um, if there are narratives about Israel that he takes from the Old Testament, um, they're, they're minimalist, okay? Uh, so Abraham certainly is a foundational narrative. But it's interesting that I think for Abraham, Paul sees there a kind of corresponding pattern to what he sees um, in in Christ and the Christian life. It's it's about a pattern, right? right. Uh, then in um, Romans Romans nine to eleven, Paul lifts up uh, some of those narratives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in some very interesting ways kind of subverts their meaning to detect a pattern um and so on and so forth i mean i can i can go on but um in what first corinthians 9 he picks up uh, uh the narrative of the people's disobedience in the wilderness but again none of this is within the context of you know moving from um the beginning to the end and picking up the the important points between the beginning and the end of Israel's story that culminates as it were in the coming of Christ. I, mm -hmm. I have never been able to see what the salvation historical people see in um, in Paul. Right. But okay. and, and so that's with Paul. I mean, there are other, I think, problems with salvation historical understandings even of scripture um but that's a that's a bigger question mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah no i'm sure we could get into that further um so as far as as far as kind of contemporary figures who are working in um sort of apocalyptic paul apocalyptic theology uh, you mentioned uh ziegler um but 
you know, so who 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 are sort of um, folks who are working in this this area that you think uh, their work is especially promising or interesting? Yeah, uh, that, that's a good question. I mean, <clears throat> I think uh, no question that that the person who has um, <clears throat> picked up uh, after J. Lewis Martin, uh, critically engaging him, but no question extending his uh, vision and deepening his vision is Beverly Gaventa. Um, she's done, you know, she's writing a commentary on Romans, which all, many of us are eagerly waiting for, but she's done so much work already in numerous essays uh, on Romans. Um, Beverly's a, a consummate exegete. Um, she, she uh, yeah, her exegetical work is, is uh, you know, peerless, really. Um, and uh, so, so I see her uh, after J. Lewis Martin as probably the key figure um, in advancing um, an understanding of the apocalyptic Paul. Um, certainly others, uh, I mean, uh, Susan Eastman, um, mm -hmm. her work on um, uh, Pauline apocalyptic with respect to questions of self and subjectivity and personhood and the body and so on, um, I think are all uh, superb stuff. Um, of course, uh, John Barclay. Um, <clears throat> now, Barclay kind of, uh, he, he's a much more nuanced, again, a, a consummate exegete. Um, he's a much more nuanced, figure in the apocalyptic Paul sphere, mm -hmm. um, wanting to expand the discussion out uh, to uh, a wide, a wider range of issues and areas. Um, so his book, Paul and the Gift, I just think is uh, superb. Um, it seems to me there's no question that in some kind of basic way, he's committed to an apocalyptic interpretation of Paul, but it, it extends that out in so many ways uh, and over so many areas of, of Pauline theology. Um, so uh, I think John Barclay is superb. Um, mm -hmm. Of course, uh, Martinus de Boer has written uh, a recent book on um, a recent commentary on Galatians. Alexandra Brown, uh, one of the figures um, in the movement, another, it's interesting that. Uh, a number of these um, key figures uh, following up uh, on Martin are Martin's students uh, are women um, mm -hmm. who find um, the apocalyptic perspective on Paul to be um, incredibly helpful. But anyway, Alexandra Brown is writing a, a commentary on First Corinthians, um, which I think will be superb. Uh, and then, you know, um, another figure, Lisa Bowens. Yeah. Um, a student of Beverly's, I think, if I'm not mistaken, uh, her African-American readings of Paul uh, and her other works um, are certainly working within and out from the apocalyptic perspective. And so she's, I think she's a figure we need to uh, to keep our eyes on because she's going to have uh, a lot to contribute. Um, yeah. Another one, uh, another book just coming out uh, this fall, is by Ann Jervis. Uh, it's called Paul and Time. Um, that will be a fascinating book, and we're having a, a 
in the Pauline Theology Group, we're having a session on that book uh, at SBL in um, in November. So um, yeah, there's uh, and and Jamie Davies, you know, I think his work uh, in trying to negotiate some of the uh, number one, uh, trying to grasp uh, carefully um, um, the meaning of the apocalyptic Paul amongst the various figures who have advanced it, but then also um, engaging in his own uh, critique uh, is, I think he's making uh, important um, contributions to the whole discussion as well. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. No, thank you for all of those. That's gives us lots to read, which is always fun. Um, so let's, let's, uh, let's close with one last question and then I'll let you go, which is um, for our listeners, where can they, where can they um, learn more about you and, and your work? Um, uh, good question. <laughs> I, I have a web page. Okay. Uh, it's, um, you know, I should have this. I, I think it's uh, Douglas Herring. Uh, one word. Um, I, yeah. Anyway, you can look look me up. Google it. Uh, Douglas Herring webpage. Uh, as you can tell, I haven't been really on top of that. Uh, primarily, my daughter keeps it up to date, but I haven't given her new information. So it's about two years uh, out of date right now. But I, I do post most of my stuff on there. Uh, okay. Stuff that I'm doing. Um, but people can always read my recent book, uh, Resurrecting Justice on yeah. Romans. Um, the thing about this book is I think it, in some ways, for a more general readership, kind of encapsulates, um, what I take to be, um, Paul's, Paul's apocalyptic messianism as it's worked out in Paul's letter to the Romans. So, uh, you know, it's a, it, it's not a commentary per se, it's a reading of Romans. Yeah. Um, but it basically is my latest attempt to come to terms with Paul, um, uh, Pauline apocalyptic and uh, Pauline messianism. So there's that. Um, I've mentioned, uh, I've got this essay in the uh, Mark Kinzer Festschrift I forget the title of that festgrift, but um, but that's where I try to negotiate um, the relationship between um, apocalyptic and post-supersessionist theology. So, sure. okay, um, yeah, and I've got a an entry coming out. Uh, there's a a T and T Clark Handbook of Modern Theology, um, edited by Phil Ziegler and David Nelson. Um, uh, I've got an entry on theology and apocalyptic um, mm. in that, and I don't know how Wonderful. long that's going to be, another year or two before it comes okay. out, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I read the intro to your book, Resurrecting Justice, before our interview, so I can attest to how wonderful it is. Um, and I, yeah, I especially sort of tying together, you know, apocalyptic and, and messianism Um um, and, but, but bringing that into kind of a conversation of what justice means for Paul, yeah. um, I, I think is so, you know, so provocative and helpful for all the conversations going on today around just, you know, justice, social justice. So, um, so yeah, so yeah, if you're listening, that, go read that book. Sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Well, we can close there. I just want to say thank you, Doug, for, um, chatting. Uh, it's been, 
very enlightening to um, listen to you. So, so thank you. We were really excited to have you on for our Apocalyptic Paul booth. So thank you. Well, thank you, Zechariah. I really appreciate your invitation and, um, and this really excellent set of questions you sent uh, to guide our conversation. I, th I thought it was uh, really well done and uh, has enabled us to lift up a whole lot of interesting things in Apocalyptic yeah. Paul. Thank you.